and welcome to the PLP podcast. I'm Stuart Jameson, and today we're discussing the massive changes that are taking place across personal injury and clinical negligence as a result of the October cost reforms. And I'm pleased to be joined today by two experts in the field in Sean Lindley and Seamus Kelly from Carter Burnett. Seamus, first of all, I know you've done a lot of work recently in terms of training and lecturing in respect of the October cost reforms. Yes, thank you, Stuart. So as you said, myself and Sean, we're both at Carter Burnett. I'm a solicitor advocate, and we have been doing quite a lot of training on this. We've been going out to see clients, taking them through the rules and really just raising awareness on the issues. It's going to be a massive deal. And I think people just need to have a greater awareness of it. So we hope to shed some light on it today for people. Yes, obviously, I remember the Jackson reforms in 2013, and I was actually part of the the working group that was involved in the Jackson Supplemental Report producing Leeds Matrix. But I think that these changes are now going to be probably as seismic, if not of a greater impact than the than even the 2013 reforms. Also, we've got Sean, and obviously important, Sean, to emphasise that we're speaking at the end of July 2023, so we don't know the exact final form of the reforms, but it's going to be going ahead given it's subject to statutory instrument. But there are as far as you're aware, some sort of last-minute challenges and checks which are taking place. That's right. There's quite a few challenges and checks going on at the moment. We don't know whether that's going to result in further amendments pre-implementation. What we do know is the Civil Procedure Rules Committee have signalled that they are looking at the rules, they are looking at changes already, and we've already had some changes in the past week in terms of the Civil Procedure Rules Amendment number 3, and we're all kind of keenly awaiting to see whether there's going to be an amendment number 4. So obviously everything that we say at the moment is subject to some uncertainty, but what we want to do in the podcast is just to get across the basics as to what's coming down the road in terms of the reforms and also as to the implications which we have to be alert to at this time. Just to set out the basics in terms of the intermediate track, it's going to apply to most personal injury cases as between £25,000 and £100,000 and also as to clinical negligence cases where it's simply going ahead in relation to quantum and where there's been admissions, the full extent of that range and also as to the exceptions that are going to apply are obviously subject to a great deal of doubt. The key determinant, as it often is in PI in terms of judging seriousness, is going to be the value, 25000 to £100,000. But the intermediate track's also said to be for cases up to three days trial and with two experts each. The new language that we've got to adopt now is allocation to track and assignment to complexity because complexity is going to be a key driver in terms of what fixed recoverable costs are then applied on the intermediate track. So these are going to be very wide-ranging changes. And Seamus, can you just set out very briefly as to what the rules represent in terms of clinical negligence? With regards to clinical negligence, I think that there was a little bit of surprise, firstly, when clinical negligence was brought into this. But the cases, as you said, clinical negligence cases are exempt unless both breach of duty and causation have been admitted. So if you have these admissions, then you would fall within the scope of the intermediate track. So as we say, it was a bit of a surprise that clinical negligence cases were brought in. But it's important to remember that not all clinical negligence cases will fall within this. And also cases of particular complexity can also be brought outside fixed costs. And I suppose there's quite a few interesting aspects to this. I mean, when it's said that both breach of duty and causation have been admitted, obviously causation in a lot of clinical negligence cases is really very heavily bound up with quantum. 
I suppose what's going to be interesting in the short term with this is that at the moment, we don't have a fixed recoverable cost scheme for fast track clinical negligence. What's intended is that there's going to be the separate Department of Health consultation designed to cover clinical negligence claims up to £25,000. So that could then produce the quite strange situation, I suppose, Sean, where cases which are under £25,000 will be attaining a greater amount of costs than those which might be subject to fixed recoverable costs. Potentially. It's going to be one of those areas, I think, where we're going to see satellite litigation. And I think that's something we'll come back to time and time again when we talk about these rules. So Stuart's right in that he points out that there is a separate Department of Health consultation going on, which is designed to capture those clinical negligence cases with a value up to £25,000. So theoretically, those which would be fast track at the moment. But what we do know in terms of Department of Health consultation, firstly, is that the latest update we've received from civil servants is that it is in no shape or form anywhere near to implementation. But I think the concern for fast track clinical negligence at this stage is that the rules essentially stay under Part 45, that any case which is allocated to the fast track or the intermediate track will be subject to fixed recoverable costs. So we've got this strange interplay that we've got an explanatory memorandum which says that there will be a separate scheme for clinical negligence cases with a value of up to £25,000. But by the same token, we've got rules which appear to capture them within fast track, which would, in theory, lead to fixed costs based on the incoming tables, which you can find in practice direction 45. Now, that then leads to the question of where would a fast track clinic case sit? Is there an argument to say, there is no fixed cost regime for it as per the explanatory memorandum, which would then theoretically lead to time basis. Or alternatively, if it is going to be a fast track case and the rules specify fast track cases are subject to fixed recoverable cost rules, then where does it sit on the complexity bands? Because clearly the system for the October reforms is not designed to capture these low-value fixed-cost reforms, else we wouldn't have an explanatory memorandum explaining to us that there is this separate consultation. But to be blunt, there is a lot of uncertainty. And I suppose, Seamus, that the great problem is that any solicitor who's opening a clinical negligence case where the cause of action is after the 1st of October 2023 is going to have to plan without knowing what the actual eventual cost situation is going to be and facing a great deal of uncertainty. That's reality. I think that generally one of the big arguments for fixed costs as a principle is that it provides certainty to the receiving party and certainty to the paying party. But due to the fact that these rules are new and that there's so many permutations and that there are different exemptions, it does deprive solicitors of a degree of certainty. So if you are a clinical negligence lawyer and you have a case where the cause of action accrues after October 2023, then there's going to be a steep learning curve whilst you adapt your practices internally and just how you run cases. Because what you don't want to do is be in a situation where you act as you would have beforehand, only to find out six months into the case that it's been allocated to the intermediate track is fixed costs and all the work that you've just done, you're not getting remunerated for it in the way that perhaps you're used to on the multi-track. So it's going to be a steep learning curve for clinical negligence solicitors in particular. With personal injury, solicitors 
there are fixed costs already for cases under 25,000. A lot of firms are used to that. So the problem for a, a claimant clinical negligence solicitor when they start a case is they're not going to have foresight of whether or not there's subsequently going to be any admissions of breach of duty and causation. And the different fixed recoverable costs are set out within different tables within what's going to be Part 45 and Practice Direction 45. Just looking at Complexity Band 4 and Stage S1, £9,300 plus an amount equivalent to 8% of the damages for a case which is settling from pre-issue up to and including the date of service of the defence. So if we've got admissions which take place just before the issuing of proceedings, it appears to me then that's going to severely limit a clinical negligence case where hitherto there had been a lot of conferences and work that had to be done in order to secure their admissions. So that must mean that there's going to be so much uncertainty and difficulty in the bringing of of clinical negligence cases in the future. Sean, I don't know if that's your impression. Yeah, I think that is a real issue and a real concern. I think as a practitioner, what you want is certainty, you know, in terms of planning how you're going to run the case, in terms of the advice you're giving to clients as well, because there's commercial considerations. Because of course, where costs aren't recovered, someone ultimately has to pick that up. And I think the, the, the big issue really, and it is an issue that has actually been raised with the undersecretary um, as part of the, the current ongoing interventions, is when does an admission have to come in order for that case to be suited to the intermediate track? Because you can foresee these situations where you get your letter of response and breach of duty and causation is potentially denied, but then the receipt of the defence we suddenly get admissions. And at that point, you're then looking at allocation and assignment. And how will the judiciary approach that? Will they look at the, the context of where a case is at the point of allocation and assignment? Or will they take into account those earlier factors? And I think for a particularly for a claimant practitioner, it's going to be a case of trying to evidence the position, evidence the work that's been done, and, and really trying to look at the, the factors under Part 2613, which are the factors relevant to assignment and allocation, and sort of looking at how they can be sort of the interplay, how they can be worked into those arguments about what the relevant track is and also the relevant complexity band, because this isn't just about, of course, getting off of fixed recoverable costs, but it's also about looking at maximising fixed recoverable costs as well. Yeah, obviously that's from the claimant perspective, but I do think that also from the, the judge perspective, the issues of allocation are always going to be looking forwards in a case. I don't think they're ever going to decide an allocation based on what's happened before. It's always going to be in terms of the practical overriding objective as to how the court wishes to deal with the case. So I do think once you have got an admission, if a case then becomes appropriate for the intermediate track, that's likely to be what takes place. But Seamus, are you able to just recap a bit as to the fast track and now what the situation is as to fixed recoverable costs and the changes that are being made? Certainly. So with the fast track, there's going to be the implementation of four complexity bands. So this is the big thing that people need to be aware of as a whole is that with the fast track and intermediate track, there will be four complexity bands in each. Now, the definition of complexity will be different for fast track to intermediate track. So for the fast track complexity band one, you'll have your basic RTAs, defended debt claims. Band four, which is the most complex, 
will have things like complex possession and any claim which would normally be allocated to the fast track but is nonetheless complex. Now, what we expect will be an issue is that the terms or the wording used leave a lot of room for discretion and leave a lot of room for argument and perhaps persuasiveness. So complexity band three refers to possession claims. Complex possession claims are listed under complexity band four. So what defines complex? And this is where, as practitioners, we will need to assist the court and explain to the court why your particular case is a complex possession claim as opposed to a regular one or any other type of case that would warrant Band four. So it's really about assisting the court. And to do this, we look at the factors which are now under CPR 26, specifically 2613. So these factors, which will be used in the fast track and the intermediate track, are the factors which advocates should be using to talk the judge through the case, much like when you're dealing with proportionality under CPR 44. So you're looking at the nature of the remedy sought, the financial value, complexity, number of parties, these factors. And these are the things that judges are going to be concerned about. I think that sometimes people can get too caught up in value. So you could have a case that's worth up to 20,000. So it is fast track, but it might be particularly complex and it might warrant ban four. So it's about being able to take the court through the 2613 factors, familiarizing yourself with them and really understanding the impact of that provision. And also when it comes to the actual allocation of track, what's important to remember is that it's not only the value, but also the test is to being tried in three days or less and also the number of expert witnesses. So there's all those factors to consider when deciding allocation. There's obviously going to be a huge amount of satellite litigation as between what's fast track versus intermediate track and what's intermediate track versus multi-track. Sean, what's your kind of view on the sticking points that there are likely to be as between the different complexity bands on the fast track and the intermediate track? Well, I think first and foremost, for practitioners, and this is just sort of going on with what Seamus was saying before, I think you have to really think about those factors under Part 26. I know we keep going back to them, but it is so important because what we have to remember is that a case of a value of less than £25,000 is not necessarily fast track. It's a really simplistic view to, to look at value and value alone. And then I think where you're going to get issues, so for example, one of the factors in terms of intermediate track is the number of experts giving oral evidence at trial. What you're trying to do is look at future direction of the case when there may not be certainty. So, for example, in terms of oral evidence to be given at trial, we don't know what the issues are going to be between the respective experts up until we get joint statements. It may be that the issues narrow, and as such, we don't actually need those experts to give oral evidence at trial. And it will be interesting to see how the judiciary grapples with that kind of issue, because when you're arguing about allocation and you're arguing about assignment, and we find this, I think, with some CMCs at the moment, you often get this approach where the judiciary will say, actually, come back to us at the PTR, come back to us at the PTR, and then we'll look at whether oral expert evidence is actually required. And I think the key thing in terms of the rules is that it is very clear about the need for oral expert evidence. So this isn't about obtaining three reports, it's specifically evidence at trial. Seamus, what about disbursements then for the fast track and the intermediate track? So with disbursements on the fast track, the rules allow any disbursement which has been reasonably incurred 
other than a disbursement covering work for which costs are already allowed in Section 6. So with Fast Track, you will be able to get some disbursements. It is quite an area of contention as to what disbursements were recently incurred, what, what should be allowed. With Intermediate Track, there's going to be more flexibility. There are going to be more complex cases. One of the issues that will be prevalent through both is this issue of agency fees. So over the last few years, we've had conflicting case law about agency fees and recoverability, especially within fixed costs. So the idea being that agency fees are recoverable because it's work that a solicitor would have done. Now, there's been case law where medical agencies have been told to disclose how much of their fee amounted to the expert's work and how much amounted to the agent's work. Now, hypothetically, if that position were to hold and such breakdowns were to be provided, then when we look at that agency element, that's recoverable in multi-track cases because it's work solicitor would have done. Now, it follows then if it's work solicitor would have done, it's caught by the fixed costs. So you have arguments like this which are going to arise with both. In terms of disbursements generally, fast track, it has to be reasonably incurred. Intermediate track, it has to be, again, has to be reasonably incurred, has to be proportionate. So even if it is reasonably incurred, the court can still reduce it and say, well, actually, that's a bit high. Similarly, there's going to be additional allowances for specialist legal representative assistant. So that may be counsel or a party assistant with the litigation. But again, the input needs to be justified and the fees need to be reasonable. So I think with disbursements, parties need to bear this in mind when they are obtaining reports, instructing experts, that the fees are going to come under even more scrutiny than before. And it's going to be a bigger challenge to justify these. And you need to be prepared for the fact that if you get, for example, an orthopedic report at £2,000, the court fee may well reduce that. So you need to consider how you're going to deal with that. Will your expert accept a reduction? How will you deal with that shortfall? Do you absorb the cost? So it creates lots and lots of questions, but there's going to be lots of challenges and lots of case law on this issue. We can guarantee that. The examples that you've worked through, Sean, as I understand it, show that there's probably going to be less costs recovered when they're not fixed costs. Well, which way is it working at the moment in terms of the analysis you've done on existing cases? Well, I think first and foremost, the real basic thing to understand is that the whole point of bringing in fixed recoverable costs is to bring down the cost of litigation. So broadly speaking, in terms of the data and analysis we've done, essentially cases are going to be less profitable in terms of the costs which can be recovered. However, because you've got this staging, what it principally means is if you do have these cases which potentially settle quite swiftly within stage one, then potentially you're actually going to do better. The reason for that is, of course, that you get paid a fixed amount and it doesn't matter what work you've actually done. That rubs both ways because, of course, it could mean, for example, with stage one, you've actually gone through, you've issued your case and the case settles prior to the receipt of defence. So you could have gone through all that work to get the pleadings done, get the pleadings in order, and actually you get the same amount of someone who settles a claim following a letter of claim. So it's going to be really working through those issues in terms of efficiencies. And I also think what's quite interesting is in terms of the comparison between complexity bands and particularly looking at the sums that you recover depending upon which complexity band you're 
on. Because from our analysis, what we've seen is that there is a big difference between complexity band one and complexity band four. But actually, the difference between complexity band two and three is much more narrow in terms of the cost you're going to get back. And I think for practitioners, it's something to bear in mind because when you're having these arguments about complexity bands, actually, if you're saying my case is complexity band four, you need to think about if it was going to go on complexity band three or two or one or whatever, what are the real term impacts of that? Because what you might get is a party who, for example, says, this should be complexity band two. You get another party who says this should be complexity band four. And the natural human nature would be to say, well, okay, let's agree this at complexity band three. But what you have to be aware of is actually the jump between three to four is, again, quite significant. Also, just looking at table two, which is the intermediate track complexity bands, complexity band four involves serious issues of fact or law. I actually think it's going to be quite hard to get into complexity band four. And so it's interesting, Sean, that you make the point that actually the big jump is between three and four and perhaps not as much often between two and three. Now, also, it's important to remember that there's an application here as to defendant costs. Sean, if you could just set out what the implications as to defendant costs. Yeah, this is really interesting as as well. So obviously, in terms of claimant costs, and if we look at the fixed cost tables under practice direction 45, the calculations are tied to a fixed amount plus a percentage of damages. So with defendant costs, it operates a slightly different way, and it's sort of logical because in theory, if a case is lost, there are no damages. So how do you calculate those fixed costs? So what the rules specify is that it will be calculated broadly speaking by reference to the value of the claim, which is quite interesting because when you value the claim at the start, often that doesn't necessarily reflect the damages that are recovered. So you have an interesting quirk there that potentially the calculations for defendant costs will be slightly higher because of the way the rules are put forwards, but that's unavoidable in some respects. But the, the kind of the interesting side to all of this is that there is nothing which specifies what happens where, for example, a Part 36 offer is accepted late. Therefore, there would be damages, but the defendant would be entitled to some costs. And that, I think, will be an interesting area, potentially, of satellite litigation, because the rules do not clarify what happens in that scenario. If you look at 45.6, which is the rule which sets out defendant cost procedure, that essentially says that it will be value. So we don't know what the interplay is going to be there, but it's it's quite it's quite interesting. And I think it's also worth mentioning, I would say, that a lot of PI cases, clean neg cases, will have some degree of quarks protection as well. So that will be helpful in terms of those lost cases. There are some cases on the portal which would give some guidance there as to what happens when you have offers which have been made in the applications. But in terms of the actual rules themselves, there are some big changes which are coming to the Part 36 implications. They've resisted the temptation to give a 36% uplift for a Part 36 offer, but they are giving a 35% uplift. So Seamus, what are the the changes in store in terms of Part 36? Yes, you are correct. So it's going to be a 35% uplift, which seems like an opportunity missed, if you ask me. How it's going to work now is that if you make a Part 36 offer on the fast track or the intermediate track, then the indemnity costs that you would have gotten are now replaced. So if you beat your own offer. So what you will get is the additional costs equivalent to 35% 
of the difference between the fixed costs for the stage applicable when your offer expired at the end of your relevant period and the stage at the date of judgment. So to put that in real terms, if you have, for example, a 25K intermediate track case, band one, you make a part 36 offer early, then you would get an extra £2,800 if you beat that offer at trial. If it was a £100,000 intermediate track case, band four, so the highest end, you beat your part 36 offer, you would get approximately an extra 11795 Now, these are assuming you make your offer really early at stage one. So to get the maximum impact of these, you have to make the offer really early. But again, as practitioners, you can't really always do that. You haven't got all the evidence. So with this, it's, it's a shame that the indemnity cost position has been replaced. But this is something people need to be aware of. The teeth in part 36 aren't quite as good as they are in the multi-track now. So just bear that in mind. And obviously I make the general point, I suppose, which is that there's so many exceptions to these rules, such as mesothelioma, abuse claims, that that people obviously need to read the rules themselves to make sure as to where their case falls when we, we have this overall discussion. Also rules in terms of exceptional circumstances, vulnerable parties, unreasonable behaviour, litigants in person. And then there's a quirk in terms of when the receiving party has certain links to areas of, of greater London. So there's just so much within these rules that really you need to, to have your own full understanding of, of all the implications. But what I want to just do within this final part of the podcast is to look at the, the practical points that arise from these reforms. Personally, I think that cost budgeting and the fast track fixed recoverable costs have proved workable. There's obviously the political aspect to that in terms of access to justice and whether it's it's correct to seek a downward pressure on on costs generally. What it does achieve is is definitely certainty. And actually, in terms of the practicality of the system, I do think that fixed recoverable costs have worked. We don't often get a situation in practice where you get perverse outcomes. People understand them now and they know how they function. Um, I suppose as personal injury and clinical negligence practitioners, we are quite resilient and adaptable. But what we can probably see in the very near future is going to be a very large amount of satellite litigation. Where do you think the kind of big challenges are going to be in the early days, Sean? Well, I think the early days, it's fair to say, we look at it chronologically, it's going to be satellite litigation around allocation and assignment and how that's going to work and how the judiciary is going to approach that in terms of who's hearing these cases, how long is, is long enough for these issues to be to be heard, who can actually attend these allocation and assignment hearings because if we look at the staging, there is certainly no additional amount for attending these hearings. There are obviously the disbursement arguments that Seamus signposted earlier. I think the other areas where we're going to see early sort of early points raised is going to be about the timings of admissions. When when's that relevant? What's the impact of that, particularly in terms of clinical negligence? And then I think we're also going to see things in terms of fatal cases. How is that going to work? Inquest costs is, a, is another area which is really uncertain, which will impact a lot of practitioners. And then beyond that, I think you're looking more down the line at things like reallocation and reassignment, because we know the rules allow parties to apply for that. How exactly is that going to work? And then in terms of what is a reasonable disbursement, because it's very broad. We, we don't actually really know what that is. And another big point to note is that we don't yet fully know and understand how areas such as inquests are going to impact on the rules, or if we have fatal accident claims, where a dependency advice would fit within the fixed recoverable costs. Is there anything you've identified within the rule, Seamus, in terms of 
the decisions that are to be made in terms of those preliminary matters and in more specialist areas of PI? Well, it's interesting because the rules are quite quiet on these kind of issues on inquest costs and fatality cases. So what is likely to happen is is exactly what Sean says with satellite litigation. Someone will bring a claim on these issues and there is scope within the rules to argue that these are disbursements, for example, or work that is required. And one of the things when we're looking at exceptional circumstances, which is one of the things that takes you out of fixed costs, is defining exceptional. Exceptional does not mean it's the most exceptional case the judge has seen that year. It means it's exceptional for the parameters in which it sits. Particularly, it's exceptional for a fast track case or it's exceptional for an intermediate track ban three case or ban four. So there are going to be lots of arguments. There's plenty of scope for these things. And we, we, we need a common sense approach, I think, really, from practitioners, from the judiciary on things like inquest costs. As you say, access to justice is extremely important. We have actually just had out, I don't know if either of you have seen it, the High Court Senior Courts Costs Office case of Briley and others and Leicester Partnership NHS Trust, which has just come out in the last few days, which does support the recoverability of pre-inquest review costs. Those kind of cases, which have been built up over a large number of years as to the recoverability, which stands in certain areas of PI, would still withstand fixed recoverable costs or do you think it will be fixed recoverable costs coming in really as a kind of complete sea change in in the rules and how we've applied all these different factors in determining what we can do and can't do and recover costs into parties? Well as you say there Stuart quite quite right that that case is really helpful in signposting what elements of inquest costs are recoverable in those cases where costs are not fixed. The, The issue I think with the fixed costs side of it is that you get a fixed amount that fixed amount, then the question becomes is, what does that fixed amount cover? Now, we can get a little bit of a signpost here, actually, from the Department of Health Clinical Negligence Consultation. Granted, this is only a consultation, but they actually do, within the paperwork, address this issue of inquest costs. And what they propose to do is that inquest costs would be recoverable as time costs, not as fixed costs, as something's completely separate. So... We could potentially when we get or if we get to the point of implementation of the low value clinical negligence cases, we could potentially have a bit of a two tiered system in that the clinical negligence fixed cost scheme will allow for such costs to be recoverable in addition. But at the moment, the broad October reform fixed recoverable costs don't include that provision. Seamus rightly says you can apply at the end where there's exceptional circumstances and you would like to think that this would be a reference point of something which would constitute exceptionality but the risk is is that there's no certainty for parties when they're doing the work and they're not going to know what the position is on costs until the end and it's very easy to find that I said well you can make an application at the end yes you can but the work's being done the time's being incurred and then you start to have to have all these commercial considerations in terms of who's paying those costs if they're not recoverable it's very difficult where there's a lack of certainty for practitioners to plan. Thanks, John. As, as you say, I think certainty is something that's going to have to be established within the system. And that really brings back into focus the fact that we're talking about inter-parties cost recovery. And I think that this will mean that other funding models need to be considered by claimant solicitors. And the indemnity principle is often what's holding back an ability to claim work based upon what's happened in a case if it settles at an early stage. 
and settling at an early stage obviously will mean there's going to be quite a poor recovery under fixed recoverable costs, even if there is quite a lot of work that has been done prior to that settlement. If we were thinking about it on a kind of time spent hourly rate basis in, in the classic sense. And important in respect of funding models, Sean, is that solicitors have to be looking now at the retainers that they have in place for cases, given that these reforms are going to apply to any causes of action that start or take place after the 1st of October 2023. Yeah, absolutely. They need to be addressing issues like shortfall. Obviously, these are commercial considerations, but we also need to be considering what advice we're giving to clients in terms of how shortfall is going to operate, what elements of costs they may or may not be responsible for. So it's really important that these are looked at by an appropriate specialist just to make sure that there aren't going to be any issues in terms of challenges down the line because invariably where clients pay more of the legal costs, we are going to see rises in solicitor-owned client challenges and we need to make sure that we're all protected from that. Thank you very much to Seamus Kelly and Sean Lindley for joining me, Stuart Jameson, for this very interesting discussion. I'm sure the word interesting has been used quite a lot within our conversation. A very interesting discussion on the October reforms. And I'm pleased to say that Park Lane Plowden is going to be hosting Carter Burnett for their seminar on the October cost reforms, which very appropriately is going to be taking place in mid-October. So we will have uh, a lot more understanding then as to what the final rules will be and, and the implications for fixed recoverable costs and obviously a warning to anyone who does attend at that seminar that if they have an accident the cause of action will be after the 1st of October 2023 and therefore it may be subject to fixed recoverable costs. So thank you all very much indeed for joining me. Obviously if there is anything at all arising Carter Burnett are available in relation to cost issues and, and partly in Plowden have our specialism in terms of contentious costs and personal injury and clinical negligence. 